0: Welcome back to Talking Risk. This is a podcast on entrepreneurialism. Every episode we have on an entrepreneur, a business owner, legacy builder, a risk taker, and they talk about the highs, hows, wheres, wins, and whys of their business with us and with you guys. Um, We'll cover their background, the challenges that they face, and the risks that they've taken in building their own legacies And perhaps most importantly, we'll talk about the lessons that they've learned along the way. Uh, Our hope in doing this is to bring some wisdom, both life wisdom and business wisdom, to you, as well as encouragement in taking a risk, stepping outside of your comfort zone, and starting to build your own unique legacies. My name is Eric Reese. I'm a lawyer. I'm a CPA. I own a law firm called Aspen Legal, and you can find that on the web at www.aspenlawteam.com, aspenlawteam.com. My co-host is Ricky Hall. Ricky?
1: Hi, I'm Ricky Hall. I'm the founder of Nutrition HQ, and you can find me on the web at nhq.rocks.
0: And the best part of our show today is a friend uh, of now many years, Uh it seems I can't remember how many, but he'll remind me. Uh, Rich Ash, Rich,
2: how you doing, Eric? Yes, it has been many years. I've got a two-year memory gap in there, uh, included as well. My name is Richard Ash. I'm the founder and CEO of Veteran Franchise Advisors. You can find us on the web at www A D V I S E R S dot com. Also on Facebook and LinkedIn.
0: All right, so we'll be talking uh, to Rich, obviously, in depth. But before we do that, um, we're going to do something that we like to call hot topics. Hot topics. And the hot topic today is employer-employee loyalty. Employer-employee loyalty. So a very telling thing, and you can all try this at home. If you get on Google... And you enter employer loyalty to employees. There's your search employer loyalty to employees. Almost every single article that comes up is employee loyalty to employers. Remember, the search is employer loyalty to employees but your results are employee loyalty to employer now as everybody knows i'm a conspiracy theorist i believe that cardiac arrests are occurring as a result of something our government has done but nonetheless all right uh I don't think I'm a conspiracy theorist here, all right? The reason why you're only getting articles on employee loyalty to employers is because employers don't think this way. They're not thinking about the loyalty that they owe or should owe but don't owe to employees. So, I looked up uh, some of these articles, both on employee loyalty to employers and the very few articles that I found going the other way, employer loyalty to employees. And it's uh, it's really telling, right? So, first of all, the pandemic, and everybody's heard this, that people don't want to come back to the workforce uh, because no one's paying a living wage um, or because they found that government money is actually more lucrative than making money uh, through employment. Um, And, uh, you know, that second one is a complete uh, idiotic. Yeah, there are those rare cases. Well, I know a guy that makes $80,000 from government benefits. Yeah, well, maybe. Okay, was
1: that goofy?
0: Yeah, that's goofy. Gorge, uh, but th- that th- uh, that is rare. If that happens, then that is rare, and it's probably a gross exaggeration. Um, but I took a look at uh, the articles that talk about the movement of employees post-pandemic, and by pandemic we mean post-government shutdown of our economy. Um, And the number one reason, despite what all you read about, well, people have changed their attitude toward work or people now are seeking only opportunities where they can work from home. They're seeking opportunities where there's a diverse workplace, whatever the media is telling you. Um, is completely contrary to the data. The data is this people move, and they gave in. I read five articles on this, folks, from, from fairly reputable sources, all right? Uh, not just Fox News, which everybody knows I'm a fan of, but Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, and others. People move, the five top reasons why people move jobs the number one reason is at least three times more likely than any other reason. Ricky, why would you think people move jobs? Money. Money, money. It's the Benjamins. It's the Benjamins. Money, 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 money. Correct. And so people uh, that wrote these articles said, well, how can we reverse this trend, all right? And the number one reason How they say they can reverse the trend is develop a brand or a workplace that has a value proposition that the employees believe in. So, the same article that says people (laughs) leave for money, all right, are saying that, well, you need to build a brand that people believe in. Okay. So, first of all, it's completely contradictory okay number 1 but but i will give some of these authors their due all right i have a nephew that works at buzzfeed okay people know that i am very much a conservative okay he is my antithesis all right he is uh completely and hopelessly liberal all right lives in la and loves working for buzzfeed and probably will work for buzzfeed as long as buzzfeed will have him okay He's also an individual who, at 40 years old, was having his cell phone still paid for by mommy and daddy, of course, all right? And I guarantee he's not listening to this podcast, nor his parents, so I can say that freely, okay, without fear of any uh, repercussion. But the thing is, is that everybody's missing is... That is not what motivates people. What motivates people is, how are you going to reward me for a job well done? And the answer is, we're not. We're not going to reward you for a job well done, all right? We're going to move the goalpost from the employer's perspective, if we fuck up as management, we're going to fire you, not because you were a bad employee, not because you weren't profitable, because you're a number, and now we got to save costs, all right? And that is the truth of about employer loyalty to employees. And I think employees are just catching up on that. Employees now understand These guys don't owe me any loyalty, so why do I owe any loyalty to them, right? And that's what I believe is driving this mass, uh, you know, you see articles, uh, in fact, Fox News was just carrying this in 2023, they expect over 15% of the workforce to uh, change jobs, all right? Uh, that's a very low number, right? I would expect more than 50% of the workforce may change jobs in 2023, all because they don't believe that their employer is going to reward them for hard work given.
2: I, as somebody who has been riffed five times, a riff is a reduction in force. Yeah. I learned, I learned early in my career that the employer has no loyalty their loyalty is to the stockholders yep and to the bottom line right that's that's their loyalty and when once you come to understand that then you can position yourself to either climb the ladder within the company that you're in yep or know how to make a lateral or a vertical
0: move yep yeah right and and this is going to eventually work our way into a transition in talking about rich's business Uh, And specifically about entrepreneurialism, because that is Rich's business, uh, which we'll we'll get to in a second. But, you know, I talk to a lot of individuals who are scared to become entrepreneurs. A lot of people that I represent are first-time entrepreneurs. They've never owned their own business. And they've come to me in part to help them do that, to help them get into a business, to help reduce the risks, etc. cetera. And um, many of them uh, believe that their employment offers them a sense of security, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And I think that's exactly what it does offer them, a sense of security. But it doesn't offer them real security, all right? They're used to something. They're used to a paycheck. It ain't great. It ain't horrible. But I'm used to it. Okay. Uh, the reason why probably a lot of people stay in marriages and other relationships. I'm used, used to it. it. Okay. Don't particularly care for it, but at least I know what to expect. All right. Yeah. And it's, it's the it's the baggage you know versus the baggage you don't. Correct. A hundred percent. And um. Obviously, what we encourage is to understand there's a great risk in being a number on somebody else's profit and loss statement. And that risk is eventually business is going to turn down. The economy is going to turn down. We're seeing it now, right? The media isn't reporting on it, but there are mass layoffs occurring starting in Silicon Valley. There are mass layoffs. I'm not talking about... 100 people here or 200 people there. I'm talking about layoffs in the thousands of just one company, right? Right. And um, the fact of the matter is, we're all taking a risk, even though you don't think of it that way.
1: It's a, you know, we reference Richard dad a lot, but doesn't he <laughs> talk about that a lot in his book about you're more at risk relying on somebody else to provide you with a paycheck than you are going out and building your own wealth and learning to work for yourself.
0: One, 100%. So neither, and again, um, and Rich knows this, probably he's told me this over scotches uh, multiple times. I always make it about myself, but again, that's the experiences that we have guys. So neither Jill or I, were entrepreneurs uh 25 years ago right and now i am convinced that you give us uh three drinks a piece in an hour to discuss (laughs) things and we will create another business that makes money all right we don't i'm not bragging folks i've i've got the history behind it we don't create businesses that don't make money all right it's a function of how much money do we want to make What kind of return do we want to make? That's not cockiness. That's just confidence. All right. And um, I am a 100% believer that if you get to that level where you know you're going to make money, okay, you're you're going to find a way. um, Number one, your risks are greatly reduced, okay, because you're only relying upon yourself. But you know yourself can do it. All right. If you're working for somebody else, you have no idea what management book those bozos are listening to or reading and think that that's God's honest truth. Let me tell you something, folks. If you have a uh, management consultant that makes his or her money giving managing consulting, you should ask one simple question. Why aren't you in management? If you're so fucking good at managing a business, why aren't you in management? Because you're trying to sell people on theories of management consulting or management of a business. And here's the problem with that. These CEOs, they actually listen to these fuckers. They listen to them. They read a book or go to some seminar in Santa Barbara, okay, at some fancy resort. And they come back and they implement it in their businesses, All right. So let's be clear. All right. When you are an employee and I'm not poo pooing employment. Some people have great jobs. Right. Um, When you are an employee, not only are you subject to the risk of poor management and general economic downturn and economic downturn is affects your specific business that you work for. But you're subject to the risk of just really bad management. And there's a lot of that to go around. All right, so our transition to Rich is Rich helps people get out of at least that risk, all right? And we're going to talk in depth about Rich's business, but Rich, I want to go back to the beginning, um, something that you and I haven't even talked about. Um, Talk about your upbringing. Where were you raised? Under what circumstances? What were mom and dad like? Tell us about that.
2: Oh sure, that's kind of interesting. So, Dad was a U.S. Army vet based in Germany. Met a woman who survived World War II. Came back home and made a marine. Um, Um, (laughs) that's that's
0: that's, good. That's good. So, so, so you were born in Germany?
2: No, no. My brother was born in Germany. I was actually born right here in the Bronx. My father came from the Bronx. Uh, My brother was born in Germany, probably right before for by eight months before he got out uh, when mom and dad arrived back in uh, back in the Bronx I came along. So uh, it was kind of at a weird kind of at a weird time because at that time it was still illegal in some states for interracial marriage. My dad's uh, Native American and, and black mom is German.
0: So so and I want to touch upon that too. Uh, obviously, but so your mom and dad, they came back to your dad's home where he's comfortable, but this is post army career or he retired from the army when he was in the Bronx.
2: No, this was post army
0: career. He
2: got got out of the army in Germany and then relocated back,
0: uh, home of record. All right. So how long was your dad in the army? Eight years. Eight years. So he wasn't a pension guy. No All no, right. No. so your dad comes back to what he knows to to the Bronx. Um, was your mom uh, originally from the states or oh, German. No. Oh, too. she she was German German. Yeah, born born and raised in Germany. Survivor of World War II. When wow. uh, World War II was going on, she was probably 13, 14 years old. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. So they come back to the Bronx and what does he do? What does he decide to do?
2: Uh, well, the only skill he had was a bus driver, so so he was driving buses for a while and then he went back uh, to school on the G i bill, of course, and he got his um production arts degree. Uh, he worked for a couple of graphic arts studio and oh. then he helped start uh, Black Enterprise magazine.
0: Oh wow. No. so um let's go back to the bus driving days he drove for for the city or he drove for a school or new, what new, new york city metro huh wow huh and did your mom work
2: uh initially when she came back she actually didn't speak a lot of english so a job was not an option at that point in time dad paid all the bills mom care oh. of my brother and me uh was the you know was the 1950s 60s housewife
1: yeah. So was it just you and your brother, the only two kids?
2: Yeah, only two. Because I, I think we killed all the rest of them. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, my brother and I were about three years apart.
0: Okay. So from bus driver to graphic designer or graphic artist, that's a huge leap. Hugely.
2: My well, my my dad had no fear. He he was a man of a lot of confidence. Well, actually, to bring a <laughs> to bring a German woman back home to the Bronx you got to start with a lot of confidence in the first (laughs) one.
0: Well, so, so let's go back to that. So this is 1950s, is that right, or 1960s? 1957 is when he
2: came back to the Bronx. I was born in 1958.
0: All right, so the late 50s and the 60s, and I mean, just, you know, and I think I've told you this before, Ricky, there was an ordinance. I grew up in 1960s. In the Midwest, there was an ordinance. I, I'm not. I'm not making this up. That uh, there were uh, there were no minorities permitted in Mascuda after dark. All right. I mean that was an ordinance. All right. And I didn't find that out till much later. Right. Um, but this is how weird, right, uh, stuff was back then. So. In the Bronx, we would think that New York would be the most progressive, even though probably back in the early '60s, nobody really was progressive. We would think that the Bronx would be more progressive, perhaps uh, more of a uh, melting pot than other places. Tell me about at least from what you remember or what your mom and dad told you. Well, I mean, what were challenges associated with? Uh, this mixed marriage coming back to the states.
2: Well, the, the interesting thing you you would think it's a melting pot, but it's really not, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Everybody had a neighborhood, right? so you know, Little Italy, Little Greece, Chinatown. You know, you can, you can pick it, and that's the way the city grew up, right? And you generally stayed within your confines of your neighborhood. Okay. Um, Dad used his GI Bill, probably when I was about four years old, and he had settled down into his first uh, first job as a production manager um, and moved us to Bayside Queen. Um, that was kind of interesting because on my block, we were all minorities. There was uh, another couple next door to us that was interracial, uh, another one down the block. And most most of our neighborhood was black, white, or Hispanic. And, right? that's,
0: and that's in Queens, not the Bronx.
2: And that's in, that's in Queens. That's moving from the Bronx. Bronx was all all African-American, black community. Uh, when we moved to Queens, that's when it started to get mixed a little bit. Uh, but generally, if you look around the entire neighborhood, it was a minority mixed neighborhood. It was, it was Hispanic, uh, black, black. Um, some, some mixed racial couples and those mixed racial couples were generally Spanish and black and, and things like that there. But the, we, you know, my, my role when I came back was to figure out how to walk the line between all these different cultures, because I was not predominantly any one of them.
0: Right. So that was my challenge. Right. Right. And so were you, yes. were you, did you attend public schools in New York? Yes, I did. All right, and tell me I, about tell me about those public schools back then.
2: <laughs> I learned how to defend myself. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, public school. I went to uh, PS thirteen, which is an elementary school in Queens. That was probably uh, 70 percent um, minority, thirty percent. Um, white and uh, because they were in the neighborhood. But that's basically it. Uh, the, the junior high school and the high school I went to, well, junior high school I went to was probably about the same mix, hmm, probably a little less, maybe 60, 40. Uh, and then when I went to high school, I went to a vocational high school uh, in Manhattan. And that was, that was kind of diverse. It was a little bit of everything there, then- uh, but it was,
0: T- tell me about the vocational high school. Why? Why a vocational high school? You intended to go to work right out of high school?
2: Uh, no, I was just really smart. No, <laughs> no, I always had, I always had a thing about computers. Even when I was young, before computers were computers, I like to take stuff apart and put stuff together. Okay. And there was a vocational high school that was heavy math, business, and computer centric. Okay. Uh, And you had to go take a test and and figure out whether or not you could go to that particular school or not. And I qualified. So I went to a vocational high school that focused on um, business and business accounting and computers, mathematics.
0: So your dad, your dad was I, I think it's fair to say that he was entrepreneurial, even though he sounded like he worked for someone else. He was willing to make not just a job change, but a complete career change to better himself, to better his family's position. I I think that's fair to say, don't you think? Pretty much three career changes. Yeah,
2: Yeah. he he made a complete life change. I mean, coming one of the things that I've learned is coming out of the military, you get a you have a loss of identity, right? Right. Uh, I was a medic, running around the battlefield, snatching guys up, patching them up. When I come back to civilian life, you're no longer a medic. You're just another guy, yeah.
0: right? Yeah, exactly. Uh,
2: and you have, you kind of have to re invent yourself, and it's kind of challenging because you've earned this level of respect and accomplishment and and, and experience, and all of that is kind of put in a drawer somewhere and say, oh, "Well, forget about this. You you have a whole new life over here." It's
0: interesting. And so, it's it's interesting. And- so my realtor down at the lake. Is I don't know if they call them ex marines. They're never ex marines, but he was in the he was in the Marine Corps, and he told me, and I quote, Wade, yeah, he told me, and I quote, when I was a Marine, everybody trusted me. Now I'm a realtor, and nobody trusts me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's a right. it's a shock. All right, so 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 hold on just for a sec. So before the Marine Corps, you graduate from vocational high school. Then what do you do after that?
2: Uh, Well, actually, I went right into the Marine Corps after high school. I was blessed and honored to have my first or my only child when I was 16 years old, my second year of high school.
1: Oh, wow. Uh,
2: So I was raising a kid going through high school, and I had to figure out how to make money, go to school, and take care of my family all in the same time. And really, the only option out there was really kind of the military, where I can go create a, a career for myself. Make some money and make sure that my. By the time I got into the Marine Corps, my son was already two years old. So yeah, and I then to you're gonna get,
1: then you're gonna get the medical benefits for your family and stuff like exactly. that. Was your dad a driving force into you going into the military?
2: Yes, because he was in the army, so yep. I said I had to go into the Marine Corps. Um, right. <laughs> no, he wasn't a driving force. He actually never really we never really kind of talked about his army life and army career. As I was growing up, I knew he was in the army. I knew what he did in the army, but it was really a, a, a conscious choice of what are my options here. What, you know, if I if I'm going to be the man I'm supposed to be, I, I was man enough to have a baby at 16. Yeah, well, i be be man enough to take care of him. What's my options out there? Which is um, a grown,
0: which is a pretty grown up attitude, quite frankly, not not shared by all 16, 17, no. and 18 year olds.
2: Uh, so, so that was that was my thing, and I was I was on track to head uh, to go to MIT in Cambridge. Oh my god! Uh, and I kicked the boot on that and said, "Well, Marine Corps, here I come!" Wow, <laughs>
0: that's funny. Yeah. So, what year was this that you entered the Marine Corps? 1976. 1976, and you're entering the Marine Corps as an enlisted dude, right? And yep. you got a kiddo, and are you with? The kiddo's mom, is is she your wife now, or wh- how did that no, turn out?
2: Well, never got married, but we were together. We were probably together for, let's see, two years before. All together about eight, ten years. Oh, okay. But being, being away in North Carolina, being away in France and Germany and Spain and the other places that I went to, hard it was to kind of maintain. hard to maintain together, yeah. So.
0: Yeah. So you joined the Marine Corps and I assume they send you to training and you're you you went to the Carolinas for training?
2: Uh yeah, Paris Island, South Carolina.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can see it from Hilton Head, right? Yeah. Um all right, and I think a lot of that training now is all moved out to San Diego, I think is that right? PI is still open, but most of the guys go out to yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. So um, you go to training and they start moving you around as they do uh, in the military. What are you moving every three years?
2: Uh, probably every two.
0: Oh, wow. Um,
1: and yeah. how many years were you in? Eight years. Okay. you Just like you did. Like okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's two, two, two. It was
2: a, it was a weird time in the military. It was post Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and the military knew it had to make some some significant changes uh, for the next evolution, right? Because a lot of guys from NAM, that came back. There was substance abuse problems. You know, these are battle-weary veterans that went to war, to a thankless war, and came back um, with more thanklessness. Yeah, right? for sure. Even though they were doing their job. So it was kind of a weird time. There was actually places... Uh, where we went, where we were not allowed to wear a uniform off base.
0: Oh, wow. At this point in time. Because it was a danger to yourself, is my guess. It,
2: it, was a, it was a danger to ourselves. It was you know, a reminder of uh, the first war we lost, so to speak. Uh, so it was, it was a really challenging time in the military. And so after eight years, I was like, mm, I've, I've kind of had enough. Yeah. I've always I've always had that entrepreneurial dream. Uh, so I said, listen, I, I got some skills here first, the first, the first few years I was in the Marine Corps, I was basic infantry, right? I ran around with, with a pack and a gun Wow! and you know, that sort of stuff. And so, when I came to my, my first tour, I said, I was back in that, you know, Hmm, what do I do now? Sort of frame of mind. And I said, well, I don't really qualify for any job except, um, CIA or mafia.
0: Yeah. So I don't it would have been cool. Well, I'm not Italian, and I'm not Protestant. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's funny because uh, I was going to ask you how the vocational training uh, panned out in the Marine Corps, but it sounds like it was it was more Bronx training than anything. You had to carry a gun.
2: The, the New York City training prepared me for the infantry, and then when I re-enlisted, I actually re-enlisted and ended up, ended up back into my vocation, electronics, right? Okay. And computers. Okay. Uh, and uh, worked there for three years. Was on a really cool project uh, with the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps the a joint project. And I was responsible for a team and a whole bunch of millions and millions of dollars of technology. And when I got out, I walked, 1984, I walked right into dot-com.
1: So, oh
0: so um, there was a point when your Marine career or your time in the Marines went from grunt Marine, uh, and no offense to the infantrymen out there, but, no, yeah, went from grunt to professional, right? Now you're a professional Correct. in the Marine Corps. All right, so you decide to get out. um and what is your first move when you come back? I'm assuming you're you didn't follow your old man again and drive a bus.
2: No, no, I walked out. Like I said, I with my with my electronics training. Yep. I walked right out into what what began as you know when when uh, the Ethernet right yeah. when the dot com started right all the all these you know if I can do if I do NapkinFolding I could sell it for a million bucks.
1: Yeah. For so sure. I
2: walked out. I got a job as a bench technician for a communications company. Okay, and I started working my way up from there. Nice. Um, that,
0: I still had back still had in New the York. Yeah. So you're back in New York working for somebody, or no?
2: And actually, actually, I got out in California. So I was working in California for a uh, 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 communications general data company they made communications here.
0: So your love and life uh, at this point, where are you living in, in California? Uh Santa Ana. Yeah. So so things are good. You're glad you're out of the military. How did you maintain your relationship with your kiddo during all this period?
2: A lot of a lot of flying. He came out and he actually lived with me for a couple of years oh. while I was in the world. You know, mom mom got fed up and said, Listen, take your son. So, yeah. <laughs> So I, I got some base housing. He came out and he lived with me for a year. His mom flew back and forth. So it was it was challenging, but we we were able to maintain our relationship. Uh, phone, flight, sure. phone, all that fun stuff.
0: So how um, long how long were you with this communication company, uh, and what was your next move? So I was
2: with General Datacom. I started out as a as a bench technician. You know, just swapping out resistors and transistors on circuit boards sure and uh i got good at that and then i started working the help desk right where people would call in with their problems and i would try and solve them sure and then i got and then i made a a vertical move into uh logistics where i was now responsible for the care and feeding of making sure we had enough equipment around and then uh Another vertical move I went into and I started doing professional services where I was going out and seeing the customers and actually fixing gear on site. And this is
0: all for the same company?
2: All for the same company. I was, I was moving every year. I, I was trying to take a step up.
0: Nice. And we were you know, just, just talking about uh, this employee loyalty. As long as you're moving up and continue to make more money... Uh, that's probably how you do it as opposed to a brand that your employees, you know, believe in or, or what have you. So they keep moving you up. Things are good. I'm assuming, um, why and when did you decide to leave that gig? Well, I, I, you know, i got
2: comfortable in that gig and I got an opportunity to transfer back to New York because now my son is 10 years old Yeah, uh, and it's daddy time.
0: Yeah. So
2: I, uh, I asked uh, my boss, I said, listen, is there anything I can do to get me back to New York? And he says, well, we've got a sales engineering position over there. And sales engineering is basically keeping the salesman honest. Right? Okay. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it is. Right? That's sure. funny. So uh, I transferred back to New York. I settled into New York and I, I was working my butt off. I became the major account rep for Chase Manhattan bank. Wow the stock exchange, I had like five customers, five major customers that were buying, you know, millions of dollars of gear a year, and they wanted somebody that they could pick up and phone call anytime, and I became that guy.
0: That's interesting, because we, uh, on our last episode, we had a guy with a computer science degree that ended up in sales for IBM.
1: No, a mathematics Hmm. degree.
0: Oh, mathematics degree, correct, Mm -hmm. and he ended up in sales, and... You know, that's a hell of a leap for sure. So how did you make that leap from being a technician, which I I don't want to say is nerdy, but, you know, the dude that. It's
2: nerdy. Very nerdy.
0: Yeah. So
2: the the cool thing is being a sales engineer is you get to be technical.
0: Yeah. But you're,
2: you're tied to the hip of a sales guy. So I learned sales by being next to a sales guy all the time and watching him work.
0: Oh, interesting. So it was on-the-job on, uh, the, on the job training, for lack of a better exactly, word. Exactly, exactly.
2: And one day I walked into the office. Uh, actually, one day I walked into the office of one of the companies I was working, I, I was assigned to, and I was talking to the guy there, and I happened to look down on the desk, and I saw um, a dedicated uh, tech position. So they wanted, you know, it, it was chase, chasing that bank, and they wanted somebody on site that can work the gear all the time.
0: Right? All right, in house gear.
2: And, and, and I, I read upside down really well, and I saw the contract laying on his desk, and I saw how much the contract was for. Yeah. And so I went back to the office and I asked my boss, I said, listen, uh, you know, I've been working my ass off here. New York is kind of expensive. I need a raise. Yeah. And my boss said, Well, I'll get back to you. And he got back to me. Back <laughs> to <you. laughs> and he said, No, we're not going to give you a raise. <laughs> so I said, I'm okay with that. That's okay. I, I understand. Tight budget, all that fun stuff. So I went back to the guy I knew at Chase and I said, I understand you're looking for on site tech. Wouldn't it be cheaper if you just hired somebody at Chase as opposed to paying a 1099 contract or a contract to the, to the supplier? Yeah. And he said, "It would absolutely. Would you be interested?" And I said, "I would be very interested."
0: Well, he says, "Would you be interested?" You say, "Well, this is the first time I've I've considered it, but it's like hell yeah, I'm interested. I've seen the contract already. (laughs) I could sign it upside down if you want me to." (laughs) Exactly.
2: And so I went back to my boss and I said, "I quit." And I went to Chase, and they hired me over there. And that's
0: how I transitioned out of that job. Good for you. So at Chase, you were an in-house. I mean, what was your official position? Uh, data data center manager. Right. You were the guy that said, turn it, turn it off and turn it back on. <laughs> exactly. All right, so, but Chase is a big organization, still is a big organization, so now I I would assume the sky's the limit, or at least it feels like the sky's the limit for you.
2: Yes, but, you know, coming out of the Marine Corps, getting your first job, getting your second job, there was things I still needed to learn, like I did a really poor job of negotiating my new salary, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I, I figured out about six months into it, hmm, I should be making $20,000 more in this position. But, right. but you know, that's what I learned. Isn't that funny? Um, Isn't that
0: funny how that works? When you work for somebody else, and even as a partner in a big firm, you just, you're just you a glorified employee, um, you are satisfied with the money, right? It's like, okay, your salary this year is going to be 300 grand. You go, oh, I'm satisfied with that. Then all of a sudden you find out what some shitball down in, you know, yeah. your Tampa office is making, a 380, and you go, fuck that, man. I'm worth 380. I'm worth 385. I'm a lot smarter than him. So, you know, it, it's, it's yeah, it's funny it's how wondering. fleeting our – Comfort or our uh, satisfaction is.
2: Yeah. Well, it's it's also interesting because coming out of the military, you don't know how to negotiate a salary, right? Sure. Um, and you're happy to have a job because you know last day you get out the military they shred your record your your ID card and give you a temporary gate pass and say I'll see you later yeah because
1: yeah. when you're uh, in the military it literally says it shows your pay scale E1 this is what you make E2 this is what you make E3 this is what no, you make no choice no choice that's, that's it. it and then you can get no, hazard no. duty pay and different stuff like that but that is your base and yeah. there's no negotiating no matter how much ass you kick and how good you are
0: yeah. love, you're I'd still getting paid
1: as the guy that's a piece of shit over in the corner I'd
0: love to see yeah. go in and talking to your commanding officer and say i think i'm worth more
2: <laughs> all right yeah, that'll, that'll go well but not only that but there's also soft dollars that you get in the military that you don't get in in the civilian world right uh, my health care in the military never had to pay for it yeah uh if i was hungry i can go over to the mess hall i can eat three meals a day every day yeah. right so i had a place to sleep i had a place to eat I, all my health was taken care of so when you, when you leave that environment, now you have to pay for your health, you have to pay Expensive. for your meals, you get your lodging. yeah. And those soft dollars don't kind of figure into your head, right? You're thinking, well, I was making, you know, 50 grand in the core. I can go out here and I'm going to negotiate 55 so I got an extra five, right? You're losing and, money. And, you're and yeah, you're losing money big time. Yeah, So sure. that, was, that was kind of the lesson learned uh, when I went to Chase. Hmm, okay, I, I need to learn this, I need to learn that. Uh, and my job was to keep Chase ones and zeros flowing. That was my job.
0: Sure, sure. So from Chase, where you go from there?
2: From Chase is what I left there and I went into my first entrepreneurial experience. So when I leave a job, it's got to be for something really, really rewarding. Yep. And one of the guys, one of my suppliers uh, had a business and basically he sold cables and chips, basically. And okay. That's what he did. Uh, and he wanted to expand his business to start building data centers, to do more of the networking stuff. I don't know if you guys remember Novell, but, you sure. know, operating system and things like that there. Sure. Uh, that was kind of around that time. And he came to me one day and took me out to lunch and said, would you be interested in partnering? Uh, I got about, you know, 10%, 15% uh, availability that I can offer you to come and help build the next generation of my company, which is going to go beyond selling cables and chips into um, designing and building networks. Okay. And I said, where do I sign up? Yeah. (laughs) And I went and I started, that was kind of my first partnership because like I said, I was always on an entrepreneurial journey. Uh, You know, I I tell this funny story when I go teach uh, the veterans, about uh, entrepreneurship and franchising is I tell them, hey, you know, my first business I was a media distribution consultant.
1: Yeah, right. And
2: everybody, ooh, ah, yeah. And I said, you guys know what that is? And everybody, no, I have no clue. I was a paper boy when I was
0: nine years old. Exactly. That's funny. So, um, capital contribution, guaranteed income, any of that, or is all the safety net gone?
2: All the safety net is gone. All I got is equity and
0: future revenues for the company. Jeez.
2: Uh, but it was worth a shot. I was, uh, I just gotten married to my current wife. Okay. And, and we had an opportunity you know, to uh, for me to kind of take the leap. My son was kind of finishing high school at this point in time. so. Life was good, and I could kind of like say, take this shot. No, 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 nothing ventured, nothing lost. Sure, sure. And this this
0: was still in New York because I know you're in Texas now. Yeah,
2: this was still in New York. Still in New York, and uh, we had some. We we had a great five year run. And the guy who brought me in, unfortunately, he got ill. He was he was an older 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 gentleman who brought me in. Uh he's on my top three list of CEOs I've ever worked for. Wow. Uh I got ill and the the other partners in the organization said, I wanna play golf mostly. This 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 yeah <laughs> this computer this computer stuff is like too hard. The to sales cycle's too long. Sure. Right? Um and they said, Well, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna break up the company and we're not gonna do that anymore. So I was back out on the street. And then what? Uh, then I had that taste of entrepreneurial stuff, and I actually went, I tried to go back into corporate America.
0: Oh, you can't. You can't go back. Uh,
2: cannot do that. I, I went to a company, uh, that had just merged, uh, the California, a California company merged with a Boston company, uh, and started a new company called Synoptics, I think it was. Okay. And, and they hired me right away, right up, you know, hey, love your experience. Let's get you to work. And starting on day two, I already hated it. Yeah. I mean, I hated it with a passion, didn't Close like the back. people I was working with, nothing. Uh, and so I said, well, this ain't going to work. Let me go, let me go find something out. And I called my headhunter and, uh, they said, well, we got this interesting, little job here it's uh it's, it's kind of risky but who cares Xerox is doing a startup mm. uh, and, and they're looking for you know sales engineers and all that fun stuff would you be interested you know we don't know whether it's going to work or not but it's you know it's got Xerox funding behind it and you can come in and you can kind of do what you do
0: right.
2: and so I left the big corporate company and I went to a very very small startup from Xerox and that gave me my entrepreneurial feeling back.
0: Yeah. I, it's
1: a grassroots.
0: You know, I, uh, I've been approached by multiple law firms. And again, I'm nothing special, but they know I know how to sell legal services. And I've been approached by multiple law firms ever since I started this law firm. And the first one was a fairly sizable firm. And they approached me and they said, gee whiz, we just learned that you started your own firm we wish we would have known. Of course, I didn't do a public announcement to my competitors, and uh, and they said, "Would you would you consider coming to work from uh for us?" And I told the recruiter, I said, "That depends." And they said, "That depends upon what?" And I said, "Do you want to die? <laughs> <laughs> because I will kill someone by the end of my first day. Yep. I can't. Once once you're an entrepreneur, once you're the determiner of everything." The marketing, the budget, the goals of the company you can't go back well you're
1: unhirable at that yeah. point
0: uh, uh, you're unhirable yeah you make yourself unhirable that's a great point
2: yeah and, so and, and and that was that was the really cool thing is this was what we call an entrepreneurial experience because there was there was nothing not even anything down on paper and I got to come in and actually create a company that was funded by one of the largest companies in the world
1: Wow.
0: So there is no way from this experience that you've had, and this is great experience that you've had, there is no way on earth that I line you up with what you're doing today. No, that's that's something totally different. But, <laughs> but,
2: but it, I, it is it isn't it isn't, right? Because this, this is this is, I'll make I'll make this the reader's digest version. Sure. I went to work with Xerox and like they said, no guarantees. They had a really cool product. Uh, and I worked with them for a while. And I think it was like three years then they said, ah, well, you know, we're not doing what we want to do. We're going to shut this down. And I said, well, I've made a little bit of money here. I'm going to start my own business. Right. Okay. So that was my shot there.
0: Employee. And you see how that employer employee loyalty <laughs> worked out for him.
2: Yeah. I met- I mentioned earlier, I've been ripped five times. Yeah. Uh, that, that was, Um, and I said, well, I'm going to start my own company. And I started my own company. It was called computer tutor.
0: Mm, And basically that sounds like a franchise.
2: It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And I was going in and I'm going to help people automate their homes using their computers, their audio systems, their TVs, their lights, all that fun stuff.
0: He's Elon Musk. You are Elon Musk. Uh,
2: uh, Unfortunately, it was 19. 98 at the time, and people were looking at a computer in
0: my house. I ain't got no computer in my house. <laughs> oh, so you're not? So, he's not Elon Musk. He's Leon Musk. Okay, exactly. it's, a, it's a it's a distant relative. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Keep going. And,
2: and as much as I love that business, and as much as it was a good year, if I had waited another eight years. I would have been the geek squad. No doubt. Right. Uh, But it crashed and burned uh, big time. I mean, I kept shoveling money in and it kept sucking money out. And I learned a a huge lesson from that. I said, okay, lesson learned. I went back into corporate America again. Oh, my God. Uh, I went to another another startup, right? So that was my thing now. I'm not working for any established company. I'm only going to do startups. And I went to work for a startup. And I started evaluating how, how things went wrong, what went wrong, how did it go wrong, and all that fun stuff. And that's when I kind of came across franchising. I, I was looking for a less risky way to start a business uh, that had an instruction manual along with it and some, some, some intelligence and some support. But, and how that's when you, I found-
0: but how do you keep taking risks, okay? And, again, I'm, I'm not talking, again, we're called talking risks, but seriously, how do you keep taking risks? There have been a number of things that have worked out. There have been some things that haven't worked out, right? Uh, I'm keeping score here. It sounds pretty even, shit that's worked <laughs> out and shit that hasn't worked out. How do you keep taking risks? Is it because you had enough dough, you, you stowed enough away that – you could afford no. the risk, or, or what was it?
2: No, it, it was it really it really had to do. What drives me is passion, right? And that 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 was that's always been key in my life. I will chase down something, grab it by the leg, and not let go
0: until it's dead or I'm dead, right? It's and like, so when I make like, met- it's like uh, Ricky on Ladies' Night at the uh, <laughs> local watering hole. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So, so that, that's, been my, that's been my theme throughout my life. And I don't think risk. I think, can I do this? And once I say I can, then there's no other barriers, no other wall. I'm going to go do this. right? That, and that was kind of my thinking when I went to the Marine Corps is, hey, I'm 16. I'm a dad. Hey, I got to do this. This is yeah. something I have to do. Uh, I got to be a dad. I got to make money. I got to do this. So once I've made up my mind and kind of picked the direction, I'm off. Right? Barriers, barriers, beware! I'm gonna, you
0: know, burn, uh, burn, burn the ships type of attitude.
2: Man. Well, yeah. I, I like to use the Marine Corps. This is what I learned in the Marine Corps that didn't know how to express before that: improvise, adapt, or overcome.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: And, and that's the way I looked at everything. I, I think I'm going to go through the wall, over the wall, around the wall, but the wall is not going to. Stop me, sure. Uh, and, and you know, risk risk be damned. I think I can. I think I can do this. I think I can. I think I can. I know I can. I know I can. Uh, and I go after it. So the risk is not doing anything at all. And when I when I teach when I teach guys about entrepreneurship, I one of the my favorite things is I learned in New York City. Right? Is New York City has a subway system, right? And you'll be standing on the platform and you're trying to get somewhere, and the local comes along. Hmm, but the express I can get there faster. Do I jump on the local, or do I wait to wait, wait for the express? Right. Okay, so I decide I'm gonna wait for the express. Another local comes by. <laughs> do I wait? Do I get on the local, or do I wait for the express? The express got to be right down the track there. Yeah, because right?
0: it's, it's be. express.
2: It's express, right? So that's the choice that you have to make you have to make a choice. You're either going to get on the local and deal with the stops in between, or you're going to stand there and wait for the express. And you you have to make a decision and stick with that decision and follow it through.
0: Yep. Yep. Uh,
2: So that's what kind of gets me from one trapeze to
0: the other one. So ultimately when you landed in your current business, which is how I know you, I know rich through, uh the fba and uh again rich and i are are not uh really all that involved in the fba anymore i'm i'm one of fba's counsel i come to learn as opposed to their, their only counsel but none, nonetheless all right rich and i uh clicked uh, i think that's fair to say and rich and i have done a number of deals together so um One thing that I find uh, very interesting about Rich's business is he goes back to his roots. All right, which is uh, professional roots is the Marine Corps. All right, his military experience, and he learns how to take his military experience and combine it with his entrepreneurial. Uh, I don't want to say entrepreneurial bent. He is an entrepreneur. Okay, he's got it in his blood. Tell tell us about that. Is is did you decide to become a franchise broker? Did you decide to become that um, purely as a result of your entrepreneurialism, or? And and you're obviously you have a a need or a desire to help people explore their own entrepreneurialism or was this whole idea of a niche? And Rich was the first broker that I've ever seen really adopt a niche selling to military folks, helping them get into their own independent businesses. How did that come about, Rich? that's kind of interesting so so when I found out
2: when I crashed and burned that business and I and I started saying got to be an easier way got to be a better way and I found franchising I started looking at franchising uh and that was actually when I first got to Houston uh with Compaq like job job with Compaq they transferred me out here and I said well I'm settled now I got a job I can start looking at starting my next business because I know Compact at some point in time is going to risk me again, right? Because I've been riffed four times by that point in time. Sure. So, so I was looking at different kind of franchises and, you know, I follow all the rules, you know, follow your passion. What do you really love to do? All this fun stuff. And I, you know, my dad was a, was a jazz pianist, uh, amateur jazz pianist. And I was always in love with music. And so my uh, probably about six months in my Compact for I said, well, I'm going to open up me a little music video store, right, because that's the hot thing right now. I can sit in the back in the Barker Lounge with a cigar and a bourbon and talk about, you know, uh, music and Miles Davis and John Coltrane, listen to some tunes on it. and people will come and buy music and we'll talk music and all that fun stuff. And so I went down the road, and I got to, like, the funding phase of the franchise. The bank had approved the loan. I had the F.A. on my desk, and I was ready to go. And I just happened to have this conversation with my buddy over at Compact, who had just gotten back from Microsoft. And I asked him, what's going on at Microsoft? And he said, well, we're, they're trying to figure out how to monetize music and video over the Internet. Jesus. And I said, oh, really? What are we looking at? Like five years? He said, no, that's 12, 18 months. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm getting ready to buy this brick and mortar, $350,000, and I'm going to have a bunch of music. And people are going to be sitting at home in their drawers, download music, and not coming
0: to see me. Wait a second. What was this franchise, Rich, that you were looking at? I think it was CD Warehouse. Oh, oh. wow. Okay. All right. Keep going. So
2: I, I, I called the guy up and I said, Hey, listen, I just heard this 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 story. What's kind of your strategy to pivot when this happens? And he says, Wow, ah, we don't think that that's not important. People are always going to want to touch and feel, they want the ambiance. And I'm like, Wrong. I'm sitting there. I'm like, this guy is lost. His mind, right? Uh, And I said, "Well, you know, thanks. I got the FA here. Uh, I'm going to send it back to you, unsigned. I am no longer interested." And it saved me three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Well, saved saved you more than that, probably. Yeah, more more than that, but just off the top, (laughs) right? It was off the. And that sent me back to hmm. I need to do more homework, and I went and did more homework. And I actually bought a franchise. Uh, that was aligned with my skill set, web design, social media, and all that kind of stuff. And it took me about three, six months to get bored because it was something I had already done for a long time, blah, blah, blah. This is boring. I'm not having any fun. Um, So I was doing that and doing a couple other things, and I got a call from a guy in Germany uh, who wanted to hire me to help him sell his company. Um, software company. And I said, great, two-year contract. Either we're going to sell it or he's going to fire me. I've got two years to kind of put everything in place that I need to put in place to start my next great business. This is one is going to be it. And so I went to work. Two years later, I came out and I ended up, we sold the company, and I walked out. It was 2009, right after the housing crash. Right. And I looked around and I said, oh, my God there's no jobs out here. You know, the unemployment rate, I think, it was 13 14%. Uh, for veterans, it's always 4%, four points higher. So for them, it was like 16 17%.
0: Jesus.
2: And I was talking to an Army guy who had been in franchising. We was, we was trading stories at that point in time. And we came up with the idea, well, since there's no jobs out there, why don't we help veterans find franchising? Franchising is a great way to for them to transition out of the military and they've got the requisite stuff, requisite skill set that they can transfer over hundred percent and make success out of franchise. And I said, that's a really great idea. And that's what launched me into veteran franchise advisors. I always have loved to teach, but teachers don't make any money and I don't like, I don't
0: like to suffer other people's kids. Uh, so you can, <laughs> I always, so you can teach and make money you can teach and by teaching you're selling exactly and this exactly. was
1: what 2009 2010
0: this is 2009 uh, when the
2: idea came up i got certified as a franchise broker in 2010 and i launched the business immediately thereafter been in business since 2011
0: okay i mean rich is a rich is a journeyman i we never talked about your past we never talked about my past either most of it was spent in prison but um, um I mean you're a journeyman you've you've tried a bunch of stuff for sure Yeah I, I'm like I said, I'm driven off passion and once the
2: passion is gone, I'm ready to I'm ready to go and do something else And like one of the things I learned early I mean you started off this podcast with that thing employer loyalty to employees. I learned really early that they have no loyalty. They want you to get up and work at their beck and call. Yep. But if you want something from them, it's nine hours worth of paperwork and a, and an almost definite possibility, yep. an assured that you'll get it.
1: But Correct. Rich, wouldn't you also say that the military has no loyalty to its soldiers?
2: Uh, as long as they're in, they have loyalty to.
1: Them. <laughs> they, yeah, but I'd say fellow soldiers have loyalty to each other, but. Yeah. you know the
2: uh no the, the government the government the government in as a whole has very limited loyalty to the to veterans yep. and part of that is when it's the veterans are not a large constituency only 6% of the entire population of the United States has ever served in the military wow.
1: 6% i didn't know it was that low yeah
2: are serving at any one time.
1: And Rich, how many people exit the military every year?
2: There are 200,000 guys that leave the military every year. And only 1% of those are actually retiring. Most of them are guys who went in and did four to six years. So they're 22, 24 years old. um, Never been to college right out of high school. That is the majority of guys that come out and the, and the guys that really, really need to help because they have never been—they've never worked in the civilian workforce before—and that's their challenges. They're coming out at 24 years old uh, with an associate's degree, maybe a bachelor's, and their counterparts are bachelor's degrees. They're working on their masters, and they've got four years of work experience on them.
1: And are are these 24, twenty, twenty-three, twenty-four year olds? Are they buying? Are they purchasing franchises?
2: Um,
0: no, usually
2: if the, if the guys, so my target demographic is what we'll call, you know, you talked about E1, E2 before my target demographic is E5, E6 and above okay. or and above. Right. Uh, I also work a nonprofit organization, which focuses on the E1s, the E4s, right? Coming out. And our job there is to train them to be prepared for the workforce, but to teach them to have a vision towards entrepreneurship in the future.
0: Yeah. So, you know, Rich, like I said, he's the first broker that I know that focused on a niche. Right. And Rich explain to us, obviously, your uh, Marine experience gives you instant credibility with uh, people that are in the military. All right. Ricky's uh, Air Force. Right. So everybody's in that Everybody's in that club. Right, you all served. I'm sorry,
1: your, Ricky. Uh, D- chair sorry. Force. All
0: right. Okay. Yeah, the chair Force. Right. But nonetheless, you're you're in the club in that it's a pretty elite club that you served your country through the military. All right, so that gives you credibility. Obviously, your entrepreneurial experience gives you credibility with respect to building businesses, taking risks, etc. But um, you've schooled me a bit in. That these military people, these people who are getting out, are not the military person that lives next door to me. He's got a pension, right? College educated, uh, got a pretty good pension, he's gonna work a white collar job, all right? So now he's got two, two incomes coming in, lives in a big ass house, making a lot of money, all right, between the two gigs, all right? The people that you're focusing on are not that guy they're they're not the same pension guy that lives next door to me correct
2: correct yeah most most of my guys like i'm working with a guy right now he's an e6 um so he's been in he's been in 18 years and he's got medical out so he's not going to get a retirement but he will have some two years um yeah yeah once you once you get med board you're you're done Mm. um and uh, he's he's done a good job. He's put his money away and all that sort of stuff. And he does not want to go out and work for somebody else. Uh, and there's some challenges with his uh, with his disability. Uh, so he's he's kind of like the perfect candidate for me, right? Done all the right things. Got a good credit score. He's looking to be an entrepreneur. Uh, but he wants to mitigate his risk. And the way you do that is you buy something that already has the instruction plan for it. Sure. One, of the fun, one of the fun questions I like to ask, and I, I've done this with you before, I'm going to do it with Ricky right now. Ricky, what's the largest franchise model in the world?
1: McDonald's. No, Subway. I
2: love the answer. That's a great answer. The largest franchise model in the world is the U.S. military. Oh. They take people from all walks of life, socioeconomic. Financially, uh, financial, uh, different cultures, relationships, and they get them all together and they turn them into soldiers, right? And the first thing that they do is they you sign a contract with Uncle Sam uh, with an open check. I will run towards the bullets when I want to, when you tell me to. Uh, and then they send you off to learn the brand, right? Marine Corps, Air Force, <laughs> Navy, Army. <laughs> Uh, And when you come out of boot camp, wait a
0: second. Why do you keep calling it? Why are you guys referring it to as the chair force? Because we're like desk jockeys. (laughs) That's funny. I thought the Air Force Uh, guys were the heroes. I guess I'm wrong. Yeah. We we
2: used to get, we used to, we used to barter for their Marriott points. Oh my gosh. That's (laughs) perfect. So, when, you, when you leave boot camp, you learn how you're representing a brand, right? You learn your chain of command, standard operating procedure, general orders, all that kind fun of stuff, right? Uh, but that's all you really know. You're a brand. a walking billboard, right, for whatever service you're in. And then they send you to the occupational specialty training. And if you're going to be shooting artillery, you're not learning how to make cream chip beef on toasts, right? You learn how to do a specific skill. And then they send you out to wherever you're going to work Right. And you get there and you start your job. And if you have questions, you open up your training manual, you check your SOP. If the information is not there, you go to your boss, whoever he is, and you say, hey, boss, I don't know how to do this. I don't understand how to do this. And the boss looks at the SOP and the training manual and says, you're right. It's not in here. Let me run it up the chain of command. And when when he runs it up, what comes back down is all the information that you need or they need to execute their mission. That is the way every single franchise works in True. the world.
1: Yeah, and, and if why I, you have, go ahead, right? Sorry,
2: I was going to say, if you have the skill set to be successful in order to be an E five, E six, and above in the military, you have to have been successful. Then you can take those skills that you learn that you use every day and transfer a hundred percent of that into a. Business in a box.
1: Yep, and that's why franchisers like uh, veterans or military people because they've been following standards and um, processes from day one. But exactly.
0: But exactly. there's but there's there seems to be, and again, guys, I know we're running over a little bit, so we'll wrap it up. But there seems to be a bit of a gap, and I'm being probably conservative in that language, right? When you came out of the military, Rich, you already had an adult attitude. Part of it was having a kid. If you want to be an adult, have a kid, right? Yeah. Be- because now you realize that you're trying to protect somebody else.
1: Well, have a kid and be a parent.
0: Right. Right. Have a kid and be a parent. You're correct. You're correct. Um, Although I recommend that path. Right, really. right. But um, – A lot of these military guys, they are so new, right? They're so inexperienced when it comes to running their business, right? And I I understand how you gain, and and this isn't a sales pitch. That's not what I'm suggesting. I understand why they trust you, right? And I understand Mm -hmm. why they want to learn from you, all right, and that they're encouraged by you, right? But how do you get past the fact that these dudes, they know nothing about business, or at least a lot of them don't?
2: Well, and that, that, that's why I think really franchising is the, is the advantage for them, right? Because I can teach you a bunch of things, but one thing I can't teach you is, is you're either a leader or you're not. You're either, you're either a teammate or you're not. You either have passion and perseverance or you're not. And one of the key things that I talk about is, listen, if you're starting a business to make money, I leave my class right now. If you're starting a business to solve a problem, to pursue a passion, then let's talk and let's get that, right? Because all the other technical hard skills can be taught, and I think that's what franchises do well. Is you've got somebody to pick up the phone and call and talk to and, and mentor you and, and help you figure out the little things that you don't know, you don't know. And the hardest part of entrepreneurship is those soft dollars that you lose because you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's what I think is really the key and how having them understand what the process is and, and, how they can leverage this, right? Uh, To do this, you know, you don't have to build a hammer. I can give you a hammer. Let me show you how to bang a nail. Sure. Uh, And that's, that's kind of what they buy into.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, um, Rich, we're going to ask you the unfair question um, and we don't give you prior notice of this, but You got a ton of experience in entrepreneurialism and the corporate world. Um, And it's funny, isn't it? How the hot topics we pick sometimes just fit right in. Mm -hmm. I think that loyalty thing really did fit in with Rich and his experience. Um, If you had to tell an entrepreneur, be they military, ex military, or no, what it is that you wish you knew back then when you first started taking these risks and entrepreneurial ventures, what would that be? What, what is like the lesson that stands out to you or that guides you on a daily basis?
2: It's not about the money. If you're not, if you're not fulfilling your heart, if, you're not fulfilling, if it's not challenging your brain, then that's not the business for you. Um, the worst thing in the world, and this, I ran this is when I started the the, the you know the, the web franchise, uh, and got bored with really quick. Is laying in bed at night, staring at the ceiling, saying, "I don't really want to be here. I don't really want to do this. This is too. This is you know not what. I, this, this is not my calling. You can't, this, I don't, I
0: don't, you can't sell. You can't sell it if you don't believe in it. Yep.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And that that's my advice." Go out and find something that you're passionate about. If you don't have the passion, step over it, step around it, go through it and find something else. You got to really believe in what you, what your, what your problem solutions that is. And everybody will follow you to get to that, to
1: get to you. That's awesome.
0: All right, guys. Hey, this is uh, rich Ash. Uh, rich is you know, um, we could talk to you for hours, but w- we always try to uh, limit it to an hour, and we've gone an hour and fourteen minutes. <laughs> so, Rich, give us your uh, give us your URL one more time. My URL:
2: Veteran Franchise Advisors. www veteran v e t e r a n franchise f r a n c h i s e advisors a d v i s e r s. I can have a whole other podcast about that.
0: Com. All right, guys, um, so if you're, if you're Eric, a veteran, really, yeah, go ahead, Rich, I'm sorry.
2: I said, uh, Ricky, Eric, really enjoyed this. Uh, we can probably do three more podcasts and I can keep going on.
0: We'll do Absolutely, it. we can do it. Yeah. All right, so, guys, if you're a veteran or a not veteran, uh, you know, look, look up Rich because uh, he's a good guy. I trust him, and uh, like I said, I've done multiple, multiple deals with him over Christ, almost 15 years, which seems impossible. And
1: he's doing great things for our veterans.
0: Yeah, for sure. So thanks, Rich. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, guys.